Hey, we're back. This is Joe and TJ from the Schoolhouse 302, and you're listening to our Focus Ed podcast. Focus Ed is your educational leadership podcast. In every episode, it's our mission to focus on one aspect of teaching and leading in school so that you can make progress in your district, school, or classroom with even more knowledge, better understanding, and a clear direction on what to do next for your students and staff. In each show, we ask an expert guest to join us and we dissect their work and tons of other information about leading better and growing faster in schools. We're only doing 14 episodes per school year and we hope you'll listen to all 14. The guest list is incredible. Don't miss a single show and do us a favor. Please like, share, and follow Focus Ed on SoundCloud, iTunes, and our website, theschoolhouse302.com. And now for another episode of Focus Ed. Each episode of Focus Ed, we invite expert guests to join us. And this episode, we have with us Eric Scheninger with a focus on disruptive thinking. Eric, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure to be here, everybody. So with disruptive thinking, we're really talking about what this means for teachers and leaders to disrupt the culture, disrupt the classroom. And we will definitely segue into what this means you know, with COVID and other areas. TJ, why don't you tell our audience a bit more about Eric? Thank you for that, Joe. Eric Scheninger is an associate partner with the International Center for Leadership in Education, ICLE. Prior to this, he was an award-winning principal at New Milford High School. Under his leadership, his school became a globally recognized model for innovative practices. Eric oversaw the successful implementation of several sustainable change initiatives that radically transformed the learning culture at his school while increasing achievement. His work focuses on leading and learning in the digital age as a model for moving schools and districts forward. This has led to the formation of the Pillars of Digital Leadership, a framework for all educators to initiate sustainable change to transform school cultures. As a result, Eric has emerged as an innovative leader, best-selling author, and sought-after speaker. His main focus is using research and evidence-based practices to empower learners, improve communication with stakeholders, enhance public relations, create a positive brand presence, discover opportunity, transform learning spaces, and help educators grow professionally in the digital age. Eric has received received numerous awards and acknowledgments for his work. He is a CDE Top 30 Award recipient, BAMI Award winner, NASSP Digital Principal Award winner, TDK Emerging Leader Award recipient, winner of a Learning Forward's Excellence in Professional Practice Award, Google Certified Innovator, Adobe Education Leader, and ASCD 2011 Conference Scholar. Okay, get your pens and pencils out because here are the books you're going to want to get. He's authored and co-authored the following, including Learning Transformed, Eight Keys for Designing Tomorrow's Schools Today, Uncommon Learning, Creating Schools That Work for Kids, Digital Leadership, Changing Paradigms for Changing Times, What Principals Need to Know About Teaching and Learning Science, Brand Ed, Tell Your Story, Building Relationships and Empower Learning. I know that's Joe's favorite from Eric. Communicating and Connecting with Social Media, 
Essentials for Principals, and his newest book that we're going to talk about today, Disruptive Thinking in Our Classrooms, Preparing Learners for Their Future. Okay, Eric, we're going to jump right in. This latest book is about disrupting thinking in schools. You tell leaders that disruptive change is the new normal and that comfort is the enemy of growth. We love that. What are you seeing in the educational landscape that made you want to write this book and what should we take from it? Oh my goodness. That 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 is a such a loaded question. And you know, during my introduction, I was hoping you guys were going to say that I was a Salisbury seagull and I spent so much time in Rehoboth, Lewis, Bethany Beach, you know, but hey, that wasn't part of my bio. I think I got to put that in there. You know, so to answer the question, what am I seeing? Oh, you know, I've actually been in schools, even at the heart of the pandemic in many of the Southern states. I'm actually coming to you from location in one of my districts uh, in Corinth, Mississippi right now, where I'm coaching leaders, working with teachers. And, you know, I see a mixed bag. But I, I kind of wrote the book because when I, I look through my lens, we are often, we are influenced by experience. We often teach the way we were taught and we lead the way we were led. And if we're being honest about schools, we have to ask ourselves, how does the culture reflect uh, not just the real world, but many of these changes that we are seeing, not just in society, but in our learners. And I, I'd say, the most common piece of feedback I give is, you know, all kids doing the same thing at the same time, the same way, teaching to the middle. You know, when we look at a disruptive world, if we teach to the middle, we are not setting our learners up for success. And, you know, today, you know, I, I saw some amazing examples of personalization through voice choice, path, pace, place, high agency strategies. But then I go to different grade levels and I see the exact opposite. So when we have to look at the pandemic as probably the most disruptive force that's ever, ever impacted the profession. And I have to thank you all for sticking with it and dealing with you know, <laughs> these challenges. But the lesson learned is this. You know, we have to help students replace conventional ideas with innovative solutions to authentic problems because we are still in an authentic problem, which is the pandemic. The world is changing. We are going to more remote work. We are seeing, you know, I watched today that if you spent, I read actually, if you spent $100 on Bitcoin in 2010, you would be $8 billion richer. Bitcoin, Dogecoin, oh my goodness, all these animal coins. But we're looking at a world of work that we cannot predict. So I wrote the book twofold. How do, we, how do we not just rethink what we do, but how do we do it in a way that saves time? Two things. We get our kids to think, and we get our kids to apply their thinking in ways that solve real world problems. So that is my long-winded answer. I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm not seeing enough change. That doesn't mean it's not happening but you name the state, I've been in classrooms in those states, and we really need to push the needle a little harder to prepare our kids with the competencies to be successful in an ever-changing world. Well, it's an excellent point, Eric, about the impact of COVID, all that you're seeing that we're experiencing, something that TJ and I 
are trying to spend a lot of time on and are very interested in hearing more about and learning more about is ensuring disruption doesn't derail. And that's something we've noticed and we've heard from our people as well. Like the, the level of COVID, the level of disruption has created, you know, what we've done in the past, but it's derailed us in some ways where now there's a lot of uncertainty. Um, how can we work and operate where comfort is the enemy achievement, but where disruption isn't derailing us? It's actually productive and it delivers more for us. Yeah, you know, it all begins with clarity. And students need clarity in the classroom, but adults need clarity in terms of expectations that you have for change. And is it realistic? You know, it begins with a common vision, common language, common expectations that the majority will embrace. And I say majority because I'm a realist. You're not going to engage every learner and you're not going to change every adult. It is impossible but you wanna get the majority. So common vision, common language, common expectations, but you know, it's not about throwing out the baby with the bathwater. And you know, as I'm having conversations like I just did with this principal of a five through eight school, I just always come back to what we know works. Forget personalization, forget technology for a second. What, does, what constitutes good instruction, what the teacher does? I go back to the work of Madeline Hunter. You know, we think about the anticipatory set, the hook, bell ringer, whatever you want to call it, getting kids motivated, jacked up. Same thing we want to do with adults, whether it's a faculty meeting or professional learning, reviewing prior learning, checking for understanding, discourse through turn and talk, think, pair, share, guided practice, independent practice, closure. Closure is like the Loch Ness Monster. So many people say it exists or they see it, but it really doesn't. I never see closure in classrooms. So we go back to what constitutes good instruction, but understand that we need to chunk that good instruction and then move to strategies that are going to help kids not become skilled, but competent in collaboration, critical thinking, self-regulation, emotional intelligence. So in a disruptive world, we have to rethink our competencies. And it's hard to do that if we continue to employ a traditional mindset from bell to bell. And you know, as I work with schools on personalization, what I tell them is number one, you don't need technology to personalize. Personalization is a move from what, what we teach, what's in the curriculum, what's on the test to who, the learner to emphasize ownership of learning. And we, I'm sure you all have heard so much about equity. Well, what does equity look like in the classroom? Well, I'll tell you what it doesn't look like, all kids doing the same thing at the same time, the same way. Equity, is all learners getting, getting what they need, when and where they need it. And that's a key to success in this disruptive world. Station rotation, using data to group, regroup, provide target instruction where kids have such valuable time with that teacher where he or she can focus on their needs. Choice activities, must do, may do, choice boards where they're scaffolded, there's rigorous relevant options, but the teacher is pulling kids for one-on-one -on -one intensive supports or small group instruction. Playlists where kids are choosing the order that can be differentiated with two different versions. Flipped lessons for more older kids who can watch the mini lectures at home and then the teacher can actually differentiate in class. But all of those framed with 
you know, the connection to authentic problems, interdisciplinary connections, but the building of those competencies. So it's that combination of, I don't want to say old, but tried and true strategies with approaches that are really what kind of like those competencies that we're seeing in the real world. Eric, so you just mentioned a, a ton of things that we need to get better at, we need to implement. There's, you know, there's an obvious push for, for a number of those, those initiatives down to the lesson plan on the lesson planning that we do in our classrooms. Is there something that you would say, stop doing? We can take off our plates right away that you're seeing and you're saying this doesn't work and this is something that we can just quit thinking about. Well, I, I try to learn by watching other people and I really refrain from telling people what to do. That's not my job. My job is not to get you to tell you what to do, to get you think about why do you do it that way and how might you do it better. So instead of me telling you what you should stop doing, I will ask some questions. Is how is homework used and is it a valuable indicator of learning? How does your assessment strategies tell you where your kids really are? Are you looking at assessment strategies and assessments to see if questions and tasks are being scaffolded? What do your rubrics look like? Or are they scoring guides where kids are being given arbitrary points or there's actually context as to where kids are getting points and how it aligns to learning. How is time being used in the classroom? I, I think that's the biggest feedback that I try to give is there's only one thing teachers can control and that's the time they have with kids. And if you are a leader, it's how do you give teachers feedback to get them to rethink how they use time. I don't care if I go into a secondary classroom and I see all kids work on the same level task. If, if, that let's say high school biology teacher is pulling four or five kids based on a good data source while the rest of the kids are working at their own pace and providing those kids with the needed support. So I think instead of stopping practices, we need to question their validity because in some cases they might have value. So not going to answer the question as it was stated, just because I don't like people telling me what I should and should not do. I like them giving me feedback that's timely practical, specific, and is aligned to a learning goal. So I think questions are more important than answers, everybody. But I can tell you what I did stop doing when I was a principal. We stopped collecting lesson plans and we collected assessments instead. We stopped failing kids and we went through the hardest thing I ever did as a principal, which was transform the way we graded. We stopped overburdening kids with homework across multiple disciplines and we put time frame limits on homework as well as uh, when tests could be given. We stopped making all kids go to face-to-face -to -face classes. Going back to 2012, we had virtual courses for all of our kids. Now that's what we stopped, but I'm not telling you to stop anything. We questioned, we looked at the research, we put committees together, we held ourselves accountable, and what we tried to do was create a culture that worked better for our kids. Fantastic, Eric. I, I wrote this down. I, I think I might actually print it and frame it. Question validity to decide the value. I, I truly like that because like you said, a lot of times, you know, we go top down, stop doing things, implement new things. And then we hear, you even write about this, like what's new again, 
like the old ways, but it's new again. And I think something we have to be very cognizant of administrators, it's not buy-in, it's really belief. And that belief comes from what you just described about that validity um, and making sure that it has value. So very profound. And the hard thing is some people think what they're doing is effective. And I know that me telling you what you should not do is going to fall flat because I don't know you. I don't know your schools, your districts. I don't know your kids. And one of the hardest challenges I've had, because, you know, my, my challenge is pale in comparison to all of you that are in schools. It, it does. But I kind of broke down a few weeks ago because I've been met with a lot of resistance. I have a few projects where I can honestly tell you that what I'm seeing in the classroom is the same way that I was taught a, a long time ago. And the idea here is leadership isn't telling people what to do. It's taking them where they need to be. Buy-in, you shouldn't have to sell a better way to do things. You show belief, value, whatever you want to call it. You know, Dan Pink talks in Drive, one of the most profound books, in my opinion, about the science of motivation. If you really want people to change, you need to give them a compelling reason to change. They have to believe that it's going to save them time. It's going to get better outcomes. And the number one thing that teachers and administrators are saying to me right now is time, Eric. We need more time. Well, then I flip it and say, well, show me how time is structured right now and how it's being utilized. And what I find is there aren't accountability metrics in place to hold people accountable for growth with the time that they have. But most change comes from, and in, in, in disruptive thinking, I, I love being able to share a lot of those practical stories from the field. And where I am right now in Corinth, Mississippi, I, I shared a lot of examples. And what I've seen here, I didn't see here three years ago. It was all tradition. You'd walk in, see every kid on device, all doing eye ready, no conversation. First two classrooms I went in today, I saw the same exact things that I saw last year. By the way, they didn't know I was coming. And I saw elaborate choice boards with timers, differentiated tasks, teachers with red and green clips where kids would put them at the top of their computer, signaling through student voice if they needed help. It was awesome. So those teachers are doing it because they have value, but make no mistake about it. They're doing it because the principals, in this case, the principal acted on feedback, prioritized it, and then worked with those teachers in between coaching visits to see what we saw. But that belief, that value, that really drives change. So Eric, we're going to jump into some of the questions that our listeners get a lot of value from based on your experiences, your experience as a principal, as a school leader, and what you're seeing now, a little bit different than your disruptive thinking, although I think that's going to bleed into the conversation. If you were going to improve the student experience in every school across all of the schools that you visit, what would it look like? Oh, boy. Whoever asked that question, I'm mad at you. That's hard because every community is different. All kids are different. All leaders and teachers are different. So, so I think you have to take into account local values and culture in terms of what you want to do. But I think you can work with an overreaching theme. You know, don't prepare students for something, prepare them for anything. How does your culture prepare them for anything? So I always start with 
what is the most scalable and what kids want. And for example, when I walk into a classroom, I don't like when I see, when I'm with a principal and I'm watching the teacher read to kids or take notes from what the kids already have in the PowerPoint and there's no questions or whatever. So I, I think what I, would, I think what every kids want is they want their voice heard. And whether it's mini whiteboards, uh, dry erase desks, or digital tools, ask those scaffolded questions to check for understanding, get every kid involved, give them some cover of anonymity so that they can build that confidence. I also think of a certain level of choice, you know, choosing, you know, you don't have to have an elaborate nine option choice board. Let them choose one of two options. Let them choose how to show that they've learned. In my school, we create our own learning academies, a school within a school model. Starting in the middle grades, kids could be part of STEAM, Arts and Letters Global Leadership. They became a part of a cohort model of learning that was their choice. They could opt in, they could opt out. So I think voice and choice are the things that help meet that goal, preparing kids for anything. It's attainable. And I think that you begin to build off that. Eric, you have a ton of resources yourself out there, award-winning blog, great books. TJ mentioned, personally, I'm a huge fan of Branded. I always have that within reach for all the obvious reasons. I'm really what it says is practical. One thing I also generate a lot personally, a lot of ideas from are your Twitter posts and a lot of the graphics, people have kind of moved away from that on Twitter. You haven't. So just if you haven't heard lately, power of those, I want to reiterate the power of those. For some, especially smaller districts, um, I find them incredibly valuable when we don't have necessarily the, the bandwidth to create things like that. So it's much appreciated. The question is really, if, if you're going to dig in and suggest one of your favorite resources to support teaching and learning in the classrooms, what would it be? Oh, my goodness. I'm looking at it right now. My favorite resources are the people that are actually doing the work. Let me be very clear, everyone. There are no experts. I don't care how many books they've written, because one of, a lot of what my principals lamented about during the pandemic was how these experts that have written books for years and years and years had no answers to their problems. The best resource is the room, everybody. And, you know, I, I cringe when I hear my bio. I cringe when I hear about my books because here's the thing, without people like you, I have nothing to write about. I don't get to see how an idea can manifest itself into a practical strategy that improves outcomes for kids. So when people ask me, list the name of somebody or what book, I go like this because that doesn't give you the affirmation that your work is so incredibly powerful. Now, what I will tell you is to be a resource, you need to share. You need to make sure you talk about the process that you go through leading change because it is not easy as you know. But to be a resource, people want to know, well, what does it look like in elementary, middle, high school? What does it look like in a rural, suburban, urban district? So to be a good resource, align it to research, but have that evidence. And you know what I try to do is show the evidence. Unfortunately, the internet I'm on right now is blocking Twitter or else I would have put a link into some of the evidence that I shared today. 
but I will put a link into my Pinterest board because I got that all ready to go. And you can kind of see some of the things that, that the schools have done. So, you know, there's a saying that the smartest person in the room is the room. So don't ever feel that your work doesn't have value. But here's the thing, everybody, this is a big sandbox. And the sandbox of, that social media allows to create your own personal learning network, anyone can jump in and play in the sandbox. But if you're not part of the space, you can't take advantage of the space. And I'm always looking for the best resources, all of you, as I try to assist my schools uh, that I work with. So that's my answer to that question. Eric, you're definitely you know, having an impact and uh, moving all over the educational space here. We just heard from you before we started the show, how you're doing work in, in Hawaii and, and, and a number of other states. Oh, and- now you had to say Hawaii. Now everyone on the call is going to hate me. And, you know, you didn't give the context for the work in Hawaii, but I'll just let everyone hate me for a few minutes. Well, we, we had to plug the fact that you're, you're, you're able to do that work and, and, and visit a number of awesome places. And like you said, see awesome schools doing great things and things that need to change, as you've said before, and, and be disrupted. Um, but for you to feel like you're making the greatest impact um, over the next three to five years, um, what does that look like for you? I don't even know what it's going to look like tomorrow. Here's the one thing for me. You get what you model. And, you know, uh, some of the best experiences are when school leaders have pushed me to do things that I've never done. One of my elementary schools in Tennessee, the principal is like, hey, Eric, you already talked to us about personalization. I want you to run our session using a choice board. And I'm like, oh, darn it. All I ever do is talk about it. Remember, I never did one before. So then I did it and now I use it all again. I mean, all over the place. So, you know, when I think about the work that I do and I'll give you an example, I met with all the principals here yesterday to kick off year three of our work. And I said, because there's a lot of new principals because a lot of them got promoted to central office in the same district. I'm like, when I come in, everybody, you're going to dictate how to use my time. So it's a really hard question to answer because I personalize the learning experience for those that I'm blessed to serve. And I say, hey, I'll give you the resources. You got to ask the right questions. But your goal is, here I am. How do you want to structure the time? But then in the interim, what are you going to do when we collaborate on shared goals to show evidence of growth over time? So I guess what I try to do with every project, it could be, you know, a year, two years, possibly even five years, if things keep going as well as they are here where I am right now, is, you know, I want to be able to show scalable change, you know, in this case, pre-K through 12. I don't feel that's a success if I can empower all the leaders to empower most of their staff to embrace that common vision, common language, common expectations. You know, when we think about change, it all comes down to relationships. Without trust, there's no relationship. Without relationships, no real learning or change occurs. So that's a very, very hard question to answer uh, because I'm serious. I don't know what tomorrow is going to look like. I have a coaching visit with a brand new high school here, and we're going to set that up. But in the end, you know, I do have defined, uh, kind of in my head, defined metrics in terms of both qualitative and quantitative evidence that I want to be able to show 
that illustrates a good return on their investment. Would you mind digging into the weeds a little bit about some of those metrics? The majority of individuals on this call have admin experience or in that type of position. And I think you give you could give very good examples of what that could look like. So, you know, you come in and you're obviously giving a lot of information, you're teaching a lot, but having the output and outcomes, a specific part of your work, I think is what draws people to you. Can you dig into that a little bit for us so people can have an idea of what you're referring to? Yeah. So, you know, I, I get this a lot in terms of, you know, people that want to, you know, measure growth over time. And data is a big part of that conversation. You know, I will never say it's not important. I will never say don't do summative exams or, or whatever. But, you know, that whole thing is what do our communities look at? Unfortunately, they look at your standardized assessment data. So one thing, one project that I got at, we're looking at now, Pinellas County, Florida is like, hey, we're listeners in work, but we want to know, how have you improved test scores? So the pandemic year has made that kind of difficult. So I was able to look at the data here in Corinth from 2019, when they tested, uh, they tested in 2019, they didn't test in 2020, but they tested at the end of 2021. And, you know, being that I was here in the district with them and we focused a lot on, you know, how do we analyze data and use it to focus on supporting learners. There was a 20% increase across the board, ELA science, math in fifth grade. A lot of the rest of it was flat, which is good that it didn't go down. Another school I worked with that was opened up brand new and I was very worried. I'm not going to lie because this is in my home district of 120,000 kids where I now live in Texas, 120,000 kids. It's huge. And I was very nervous because we are the largest high achieving district in the state of Texas. And they are probably the best example at scale of blended learning. I'm telling you it's happening in every classroom consistently rigorous and relevant. And I was worried because we had the highest achieving elementary in my community uh, where I live. This was the new school in my community. My daughter was a fifth grader there. And when they took standardized tests for the first time, 95% proficient or higher, all grade levels tested, math, science, and ELA. And we're able to weave a story to the community because my friends were like, oh, the teachers aren't teaching. Why do we got to go on Seesaw, Google Classroom, these choice boards and playlists? Guess who staff members, what school they send their kids to in the district now? This one. So, you know, data is one piece, but I think we can also paint the positive picture with evidence in terms of how we are challenging kids to think and get them apply their thinking. What I love doing is, is capturing evidence on video of pictures to show the construction of a task to align it back to and say, hey, parents and families, you try going doing, and doing this stuff. One thing we did is we brought parents in when we went bring your own device not in 2009, uh, first school in New Jersey to do that. And they came in and they couldn't even do the tasks. And my parents spoke 40 different languages, one third of our population classified special needs, bring your own device, blended, personalized. We were doing that all from 2010 on. 
And in 2013, for the first time ever, we became one of New Jersey's top performing public high schools for achievement. We also became one of the, the country's top achieving schools for achievement. 1,026 out of 26,000 for SAT and standardized test scores. And we had people visiting from all over the world. New York City media was at my school all the time. So there's different ways to measure success. You can't discount what your community wants, but if they're only focused on test scores, well, what I'll throw back on you is what else are you giving them to show you how you're showing growth? We have portfolios, my daughter's school in Seesaw, Google Classroom, all aligned. And then we had benchmark assessments that we were able to match that against. So, so many different ways. Combination, what I'm trying to say is a combination of qualitative and quantitative evidence, everybody. And I will tell you this. Most districts are great at collecting data. Very few are good at actually using it effectively, in my experience. And you can't take that, but anything I say personally, because I've never been in any of your schools. I should have said that personally. I should have said that before too. The group with thick skin. I don't think you're going to offend anyone. Yeah, our listeners are looking to learn and grow, so they want to be disruptive, and that's good. If there's a, so last couple of questions here for you, Eric, is if there's a title of your next book, a book you plan to read or that you wish someone would write because it's just not out there, what would that be? What are you looking to learn about yourself and, and what, should, what should we think that is coming in the future because there's just not a lot out there about it and there needs to be? Oh, boy. Well, now we'll see if you all do have an open mind. Now that's a tough question. And I, I was going to say, I don't have a book, but that would have been a lie. I had six different superintendents during my tenure as a principal, and I'm going to write a book, what not to do as a district leader. And I've saved a lot of evidence and I wanted to wait for my last superintendent to retire because I'm not that kind of guy and I'll change the names, but I have a lot of stuff because I think it's important, at least from a building leader perspective and a district leader perspective of the things that do not inspire people to want to change. So I don't know what the title is going to be yet, but it's going to be something along those lines. And who knows, maybe I'll do it 20 years from now. I don't know. All right. Well, this has been fantastic, Eric. I can't wait to read that book. I know I could learn some lessons <laughs> on what not to do. And I have uh, as well in my position as a district leader. So if you need to call anybody and say, what have you done that you would recommend not doing? I could be on your list of people to, to ring for that book. Is there anything else that you would add for our listeners today on the call? Anybody who's a, who's a teacher or a leader who is looking to grow and, and disrupt thinking? Any final thoughts? Uh, now, see, you asked me that question, and I could speak here forever. So now I got to temper it. Here's one thing that I've been learning the hard way. Everybody says they want feedback. If you're one of those people, are you really open to feedback? And I think you got to look at the people that you serve. Today, the principal just got 3,000 words of feedback from me today. But what I found is there is a resistance to feedback. Feedback is not evaluative. Feedback is about growth. 
feedback's about having a dialogue, not a monologue. And the only way we can get better is if we create a culture that is heavy on feedback, especially in the classroom as well. Learners need feedback just as much as adults. Uh, that's one thing. The other thing I will say is thank you. Thank you for still sticking with it. Thank you for being in education. Thank you for coping with the most challenging time. We need you, everybody. You don't get enough credit. We need you. We need your teachers. And, you know, I've been able to see it firsthand. And it's heart-wrenching what some of you are dealing with. Just know that your work is appreciated, that you are making a difference. And the last thing I will say is when we talk about leadership and in this crazy, crazy world, there is no shame in saying publicly that you don't know and that you need help. That is a sign of strength. A sign of weakness is thinking that you know it all or that you don't need help. So find out who your people are that can help you achieve your goals. Every day I'm faced with something that I'm asked that I don't know the answer to. And I'm okay with that. I just know the people that I can reach out to, to do that. So that is my parting words. I will not going to say they're full of wisdom, but I just look forward to each day that I get to learn something new. And by the way, if you ever want to share anything with me uh, that, that you're doing for feedback, don't be shy because I won't be shy in providing it. Thank you, Eric. Um, this has been fantastic. Uh, again, folks, you've heard it here on Focus Ed, Eric Schenninger. Everyone, how about a virtual round of applause from our live audience? Don't forget to follow the schoolhouse302.com for podcasts, blog posts, books to read, and more. We'll be back soon with another episode of Focus Ed. Until then, stay focused. And now a word from our sponsors. Hey, Joe, you know what leaders need these days? What's that, TJ? Sleep. A good night's rest. Self-care. We've heard it over and over and over again from our guests on the podcast that you can't pour from an empty cup. Leaders need sleep. One of the number one ways you can replenish yourself and lead better is a good night's sleep. I hear you, but you know what? I'm so tired. I don't even like thinking about, you know, getting a good night's sleep. But, you know, do tell, how do we go about getting better sleep? Well, I think that's part of your problem is you need a better bed. It always starts with the bed. That's why we recommend GhostBed, our sponsor, with 30,000 plus five-star reviews. Their patented sleep and cooling technology gets you to sleep faster and longer than any other bed. That's right. And their handcrafted mattresses come with a hundred and one night at home sleep trial and a two times the industry standard warranty. They're absolutely certain that their beds will work for you. And with free shipping within 24 hours of your purchase, it's fantastic support from the company. And guess what? Just for being a listener at the Schoolhouse 302, you get 30% off with the use of our code SH302 at checkout. You go to ghostbed.com. You get some sleep so that you can lead better and grow faster. You use SH302 at checkout.
Absolutely. And last thing, even if you don't need a bed, you're thinking, wow, I would love to try out Ghost Bed, but I just bought a bed. Refer someone else for a bed at ghostbed.com. You'll get a hundred bucks for helping someone else get a good night's rest. Wow. That's 30% off with SH302 code at ghostbed.com. A hundred bucks for your referral. If you get somebody else a good night's sleep, better sleep for you, better leadership, ghostbed.com. You can't beat it. Ghostbed.com.